Hello and welcome to Cup Cogs episode 21. Today's episode we're going to be talking about that can of worms, watercrafts. Best way to get you some fish on the bank, what you should be looking for. Got a great guest on. He's been carp fishing since the 1970s. He was the founder of Nutribates with Tim Paisley back in 1986. He's a consultant for Christon uh, and Summit. He's also with RG Bait and Carbon Bait team member. He has caught carp over 82 pounds. And our guest is none other than Bill Cottom. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, mate. Thank you. Well, I say I'm good. I'm um, a little bit nervous tonight. I, I'm all set to go to France in a fortnight. And Grant Chaps has just made a big announcement that's put that in jeopardy. And... Um, my beloved Sheffield Wednesday have got to beat Derby tomorrow to stay in the championship. Uh, um, I've had better nights, but uh, I'm OK. <laughs> Derby need a draw, don't they, I think? Is that right? I think that, I think if we win, we oh, it's complicated. I think yeah. if we win, we stay up. If we draw and Rotherham win, I think we both go down. Uh, it's complicated. The, the only thing that makes it OK is we don't deserve to stay up, so... <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a shocking season, so I, I sort of thought we were going down five or six weeks ago, so if we yeah. don't, it's just a massive bonus. I'll tell you what, I'm a Man United fan, and I think we, we deserve to stay up, but we're in a final and we're second in the league for some reason, but hey. Yeah, and you still moan about it, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you want to try supporting Sheffield Wednesday for a week. <laughs> Excellent, right, we'll swiftly move on. Okay, but <laughs> yeah. Great pleasure having you on. You're an absolute legend of the sport. You've been about since I was a kid. I'm sure there's lots of listeners out there are rich and to, to hear what you've got to say about Warcraft. Um, but before we get on that, we'd like to get a lowdown of how you got into your carp angling or into angling in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I was born and brought up in between Sheffield and Rotherham, which is not exactly a hotbed for angling. Um, but mum and dad, mum fished as well as dad, started off by taking me to a few of the local ponds around sort of Yorkshire and Derbyshire. And then my first great memories of angling when, was when we used to go to the Norfolk Broads a couple of times every year. And I suppose I would have been 12, 13. We, we, we used to fish on the, on the broads themselves in the day and then move on to the rivers at night. Uh, in search of bream and such like. And and that, I, I was thinking about it the other day, the journey from Rotherham to Norfolk is as excited, I was um, as excited as I've ever been at any point in my life. And the only thing I can compare it to is what I feel now when I, um, I sort of set off to Europe uh, um, onto a real big fish venue. And I still get that same feeling. You know, I've moved on a lot from from sort of fishing the Norfolk Broads for three and four pound bream, but the excitement, the buzz is exactly the same. Uh, it's just a fish I'm fishing for, um, somewhat different. But I've never lost that enthusiasm, never ever. You, you see these people who come and go. Um, I've never done that. I've always fished. I caught my first carp, I think, 1975 or 76 and it, it, it's hard to it's hard to think back and, and put into terms that in the area where I live there just wasn't any carp I mean my dad had fished a lot of years around here to the best of my knowledge he'd never seen a carp 
you know, I mean, car waters now are on every corner. Uh, it wasn't like that then. And I caught, a, I caught a common about a pound and three quarters in, I think it was the summer of 76. And that was it, really. I mean, I've had dalliances with sort of uh, pike for a couple of winters. But other than that, I've caught fish non-stop. I don't, I don't live on the bank like some of the guys do, but my enthusiasm has never waned and I love it as much now as I ever did, probably more. I think I love it more now, but in truth, I care less and less about what I catch with every passing year. But just just being there gives me a buzz that I've never found anywhere else in my life. Agreed. Okay, did you start on the silverfish at all? Yeah, I mean, we weren't... My dad never fished matches, so um, I didn't. But we were fishing locally for... Roach and bream and the odd perch, um, still waters more than rivers. And then when we went to the broads, I mean, we went a couple of times every year for probably five or six years. You know, it was roach, the occasional perch, but the main target was bream uh, on the River Bure around Roxham and Horning and places like that. And it, um, they're just fantastic memories, you know. I mean, I've watched, I've I lost my dad last year and I'm watching my mum go downhill rapidly with Parkinson's. But the fondest memories I've got of being with them is being on a boat on the broads. You know, it'll stay with me forever. You know, and just that, just that being around water, there's something, you know, so, so captivating about water for me. It doesn't matter where I'm in the world, if it's water, I want to be there, you know. I couldn't yeah, I agree think... with you more, mate. Couldn't agree yeah. with you more. And it is, I, re- I genuinely do get the same feeling now if I'm driving to a big fish water in France than what I used to get driving through King's Lynn on the way to Norfolk with mum and dad. You know, it's exactly the same bus. Yeah, I remember when I was younger, um, when my mum and dad were going through a divorce when I was in my teens, you know, yeah. the only time my mind would be at peace when I was on, yeah. when I, when I was on the Cart Lake. And I was so yeah. at peace. Cart Lake. I did most of my revision for my GCSEs down there, and you know, whether mm. I'm fishing or just walking, the same as you, mate. I, there's just something so wonderful again about being in nature and being next to that water, isn't there? I just think it's one of them things that you can't start to explain to people who are not yeah. into, uh, into angling. You just yeah. can't start to explain it, you know. But it's uh, it's it's been such a huge part of my life, uh, both both the business and the angling itself, the two things I've always, I've always tried to keep separate. Um, um, a guy who I know who's an awful lot brighter than me said to me on one of my first ever trips um, to Europe with Nutribates, he said, work hard at your angling, work hard at your business, but never let the two get confused. And I've always, I've always done that. I mean, I've done the occasional film, angling film, but it's not really me. I like me angling to be angling, just you know, just, just me and the water and the fish and perhaps a mate or something. But uh, I'm not into all these trips where it's a, a feature for a magazine or a DVD and that. It's, you know. But no, I love it as much as I ever have. Can you remember that first car when you yeah. caught that? Yeah, vi- vividly. Um me, me mum used to drop me on the way to work to this local pond that was run by um, a cement um, company. 
and I used to see him in this one corner all the time, and I couldn't catch him. I used to, I used to throw crust in, um, and the crust would drift uh, under the overhanging trees, and it wasn't until it went under the trees that they'd, they'd sort of start taking it. And I just flicked a piece out one day and just clipped the trees, and the, the ripple sort of took it under the trees, and it, and it went. And I remember it like it was yesterday, and it was just huge. You know, it was funny because I'd caught bigger bream, I'd caught bigger pike, but there was just something magical about about a common carp, and there still is to me. Going back mid-70s, particularly in this part of the world, they were fish that other people caught. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was about 18 before I saw another carp angler on our local waters. You know, the, the sort of younger guys out there, cannot imagine what it was like you know there was no magazines there was no slideshows to go and watch there was no you know on top of that as well it was secretive you didn't have the information if you could find another carp angler you weren't going to tell you nothing no i mean i remember i must have been 16 17 because i know it was before i passed my driving test i went up i went up to york to a carp anglers association meeting um in a room above a pub and it was everybody was just sat in little groups whispering and i was sat there like a lemon on my own just trying to get into one of these conversations but you had no chance you know it, it just wasn't happening they were all they were all all cloak and dagger passing pictures around to each other and i was just in awe of it all it certainly changed somewhat hasn't it yeah, oh, it has, mate. It has. Shall we just touch on that moment when you got involved with Tim Paisley? Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I'd, I'd had an interesting bait from probably the, the age of about 16. I was sort of crushing trout pellets up and, and nicking some things out of mum's cooking cupboard and stuff like that. <laughs> and, then, and then one of the very early specialist shops opened in Sheffield. Um, a shop called Bankside Tackle run by Nick Elliott. And it was quite local to me. It was quite local to Tim. And I bumped into Tim um, on there one day. Um, We started getting on very well, started fishing together a little bit. And we just, inspired by Tim, I wanted to learn more about bait. And in those days, whilst there were some bait companies out there, the product we really wanted weren't available. So we started buying a few bits from suppliers, um, passing what we had left on to mates, we passed them on to their mates, and it just went from there. I mean, I was 23, I believe, when we started Nutribates. And I was, a, um, as you can tell from my physique, I was a, um, a lifeguard and a tennis and squash coach and stuff like that. Um, and I I did that and ran Nutribates for about 10 months. And then I had the decision to make where we'd either, um, I'd chop the job in or we'd chop Nutribates in. And I remember going to my accountant. My dad had encouraged me to get an accountant from day one. And we were turning, I think I'm right in saying, about £40,000 a year over in them days, which to me was just a wow. frightening amount of pay. Yeah. And I, I said to me, Dad, I've, I'm going to go and see the accountant, Dad, and I'm going to say to him, at the profit margins we're working on now, 
how much have we got to sell for me to draw a wage to equal what I was earning at the sports centre? I said, if he says a penny over £100,000, I'm packing the bait up. If he says a penny under £100,000, I'm packing the sports centre up. And he said £149,000, um, I resigned from the sports centre the day after. Yeah. And I, I, rem I remember walking into the manager's office at the sports centre and saying, uh, I'm packing it in, I'm, I'm going to try this working for yourself. I thought I could get my job back at any time because I was, I was quite conscientious. I had too much time off to go fishing, but I was quite conscientious. And I thought, you know, if the bait don't work out, they'll have me back. And he said, well, I wish you good luck. He says, because you're not getting your job back here anytime soon. <laughs> but bloody hell. But I mean, we, I sort of packed it up. We not a clue how I was going to pay myself anything. Uh, I'd take my hat off to it because this is in the 80s, is it? 86, 86 we started Neutral Bates. 87, I designed from a proper exactly. job. I mean, at that time of, in the late 80s, jobs weren't thick and fast. It, what, the economy exactly wasn't, you know, flying. It was still a touchy situation to be. To Just to have a job was a good thing. So for you to take that leap of faith. If I'm honest... I think if I'd have been 35 with two kids and a wife, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. But I, I was 23, living at home. The, the, the only financial responsibilities I had were paying me money back what I used to borrow off her. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. at 23, you think everything's going to always be all right. But, I mean, yeah. so many people have said to me over the years, oh, it must have been an easy decision. It wasn't, because the sports centre never paid well. Um, but somebody put your wage in your hand every Thursday, you know? Yeah. Um, there were loads of girls there as well, which sort of added to the appeal of the job. But <laughs> whilst, whilst you were never going to own a Bentley working at the sports centre, it was there every week, no matter how many people came through them sports centre doors. You liked the yeah, job, you were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, so yeah The yeah. job that you liked doing, so that's something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... It weren't, you know, I look at a lot of my mates, you know. That's ne it's never been a proper job, that. Walking down the swimming pool, chatting girls up. It's never been a proper job. You know, I used to... Out there. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, at one stage, I took 180 women every Thursday night for keep fit. That ain't a proper job. <laughs> you know, digging coal's a proper job, isn't it? No, so doing, doing, doing the key bit class with that sort of number of women, that's more of a, a sadomasochist kind of fantasy, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But, um, as I said, it, it was a great job, but it's a young man's job. Yeah. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to get into the angling industry, although you didn't look around and see people in the, the sort of angling industry like you do now. Um, so it was a big gamble. I mean, for for two or three years, luckily I was still living at home, but it didn't really pay a wage. Yeah. You know, it, so it was you, tough at first. When you say uh, we started Nutribates, was that you and Tim, Tim Paisley? Yeah. And may I yeah. ask, just, just from my own curiosity, um, where did the where did the term Nutribates come from? Where did that name come from? What was the inspiration? Well, for? we we so many of the things we did. We used to sit in Tim's flat 
late into the night just talking about stuff. And we wanted, I mean, I think I think brand names are incredibly important. I've written about it in a recent car, um, carpology. And I think if you look at the brand names that have stood the test of time, you know, Premier, dare I say, Nutribates, Essential Baits, Dynamite Baits, the good, strong brand names. Yeah. They, they, they carry a lot more weight and they travel better than Fred Smith uh, yeah. boilies. Um, so we, we knew very early on we wanted a strong brand name. And we we were looking at the nutrition, the attraction, and obviously bait. We, we were playing around with new tracked baits. And then we just thought Nutribates rolled off the tongue a little bit better. So we... Um, we went with that, and and I think you know the name has stood the test of time very well. Yeah, yeah, agree with that, mate. Okay, so that's a great start to your uh, fishing life. How did you actually get to know Tim Paisley? Where did that meeting come from? Well, we met we met in the in the Bankside Fishing Tackle Shop, and then we I've always I've never been at the front of the queue in terms of asking things and trying to get myself in. I've always been a bit reserved, but he was, he'd just gone on the mangrove swamp, swamp in Shropshire at the time. And the more I heard about it, I was absolutely desperate to go, absolutely desperate. Um, so I just came out of it one day, I said, how, how can I get on this mangrove then? And we started going over there and he didn't have a car at the time. I was a chauffeur, he was the brains behind the bait and whatnot. And we fished a lot together, you know. We fished, we fished Shropshire a lot. We fished some local lakes. Together. We spent a lot of time together, and the interest in bait just flourished. You know, we were we, we used to travel down to Kent and to Darren quite a bit, and bait was always at the centre of what we were talking about, and we did share an interest in it. Where was Tim in the angling world at this point when you were having these meetings with him? I mean, nobody was known in them days like they are these days with social media and all that. But he he basically walked away from Nutribates after about two and a half years, I believe, um, to set up Angling Publications and Carp World. Um, before that, I think a year or so before that, he'd been putting together Carp Fisher for the Carp Society. And I think, uh, it's for him to say, not me, but thinking back, I think he saw the success of Carp Fisher, uh, which obviously the Carp Society benefited from. And I think he thought, well, there's a commercial opportunity. I can I can put a commercial carp magazine together, which there wasn't any. You know, there was a few all-round magazines. And, um, and was he right? I mean, Carp World, like any local sort of long-standing business they go through good times they go through average times and they go through tough times but um he set the standard for, for fishing publications there's no question about that yeah yeah, yeah. agreed you know um you know love him or hate him and i can fall out with him don't get me wrong you know he's he's very outspoken and i've had my disagreements with him but i'll forever respect him for what he's brought to the carp scene he's yeah, yeah. You know, it's Friday. It's easy to forget because he's always been there. You know, there's a number of other people uh, I'd say the same about, but because he's always been at the forefront of everything, you tend to take these people for granted a little bit. 
that he has brought so much to car penguin. It's frightening. Oh, we call him a godfather of car penguin. Yeah, without yeah. without question. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. You know, he's a, as I said, love him or hate him, and I, 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 I can fall out with him, but I will never, ever stop respecting what he's done and what he does. When I launched, uh, when I was putting my book together, forget when it would be, probably mm. 10 years ago or something, you know, he won't mind me saying, he was a good old age. You know, he, uh, he wasn't a spring chicken then. And I asked him to proofread it, which is a very difficult job, and he agreed to. And he said, I'll proofread it, but you've got to be available when I want to do it, not when you want to do it. I said, no problem, shout, and I'll be there. A couple of weeks later, phone rings at four in the morning, and he <laughs> says, uh, page 76, third paragraph. I'm thinking, what? That's incredible. It's incredible. You know, just amazing fella. Absolutely amazing. Four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Just, on, uh, page 36, paragraph seven. No, nah, I did I. <laughs> I didn't even know what day it was at four in the morning. <laughs> Amazing, man. That's a great insight into your early career and uh, with the God that is Tim Paisley. Um, right, we're going to get on with the topic. Oh, we... God, I, I, I didn't say that. Well, he wasn't a God. <laughs> I didn't say it was... Yeah, fair enough. Okay. We'll get into the topic, which is watercraft. Now, what does watercraft mean to you, Phil? Watercraft means to me probably a lot more than it means to other people, not in terms of the impact it has on angling, but I've been t t tinkering about in my carp cave this afternoon, plotting the downfall of a particular fish I'm after that's 800 miles away. And my mind's churning, where would it be in these conditions? Where would it be? Not where the bulk of the fish would be, where that fish might be. And that... That line of thought plays a huge part in my angling. So I think watercraft is not only getting on the end of the wind, not only fishing up against a weed bed, not only fishing the hard, the hard spots, or the, but the, the pre-session planning, you know, the planning, the downfall of what you're, what you're looking to do. It ain't just what you do at the lake for me. Um, I mean, I think I've caught, the big fish I've caught, which I've been incredibly fortunate to catch. I think a lot of the success has come down to what I've done before I've even got to the lake, you know, looking at the history of the fish, looking at, you know, where that fish has been caught. So there's a lot more to it than just following the wind. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of things, isn't it, for me? You've got to take everything into consideration. The, the before captures, the after captures, everything that's happening at the moment, the moment you turn up, the day before, the day after. It all depends what you're looking for from your angling. I mean, yeah. I, I try and target specific big fish. That's not for everybody. I don't care. It's what I enjoy. So very often you aren't following the vast majority of the stock. That, that, that's something I've learned over, over the last few years. Uh, the big fish you're after might not be where the bulk of the fish are. So it's a little, the watercraft thing is a little bit different, I think, when you're fishing for a specific fish. But it's a difficult, every water's different. I mean, one of the fish in the gravieres that was, 
the big linear, which was one of the toughest fish in the lake to catch, uh, and the last of the big ones that I caught. I saw that fish in the water um, two or three times, and I plotted where it had been caught from. And it was never, ever where the bulk of the fish were. So I got to the stage of ignoring where the bulk of the fish were. You know, I don't know whether some of these big fish are loners, whether they like it on their own. Um, and I certainly think the fish that don't get caught much, I don't think they're necessarily the big fish. I think if you, if you looked at a specific 21-pounder, you'd soon find one of them that didn't get caught much as well. But if you've got a big fish that don't get caught much, I think very often it's a loner. I don't think it's cleverer. I don't think it recognises ups. I don't, I don't buy into any of that. But I think the fact that it it leads a life on its own the vast majority of the time means that you never get it in that competitive feeding situation. And I think that's why a lot of the fish don't get I mean, you, I'm not sure what the percentages are, but they always say something like, 70% of the fish make up God knows what proportion of the captures. You know, the, the thought process being that some fish get caught a lot, some fish get caught a bit, and some fish hardly ever get caught. I think the ones that hardly ever get caught are the ones that don't feed in groups and just graze rather than, you know, get in that competitive feeding situation. And I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Could I just ask, I'm fascinated... Um, by the comment you made just now about you being in your carp, carp cave, and don't get me wrong, I'd love to see inside your carp cave, but you were saying that you've got this trip on the horizon, you don't need to name the lake, and you're targeting a specific big carp. Again, yeah. you don't need to mention the carp. What is someone of your experience and your vast, great knowledge of carp fishing, what are you thinking about today, 800 miles away, like a week or two weeks in advance or a year in advance, what are you thinking about that's helping you drill down on that specific capture you want? Well, I, I know it's not been out for getting on for three years. Um, I know the last two captures were in a similar time of year um, from a similar area. So that's the starting point. And I will do everything in my power to get in that area irrespective of wind direction temperature you know i mean I'm my my the, the way i watercraft if you like to call it will be totally different i mean i know you had adam penning on the other week and i've i've watched a lot of his videos while we've been on lockdown he's 20 times the angler that i will ever be but I have my own way of doing things, you know, and I'm not, I wouldn't class myself as a natural angler, but I'm stubborn. Yeah. And I will plug away at that area of that lake until I catch it. Because that's, yeah. that's where I believe I will catch it from. Yeah. I might be wrong, but, but it's, and I also think it's not been out for, I think two and a half, three years or something. Um, I believe I'll catch it. I mean, yeah. that might sound t terribly arrogant. I hope it doesn't. No, you, well, I think, you have I think, to I think, 
I probably won't catch it next trip, even if I'm not, even if I can get there. I probably won't catch it this year. But it'll either die, I'll die, um, or I'll catch it. And I can't see it any other way. And I think belief is a huge, huge part with you know with individual big fish. Yeah, absolutely yeah, huge. Well, how much of carp fishing is confidence, Bill? How how much of well, carp fishing is you trusting that bait and that rig in that spot? Yeah, you see, I don't think it's not just carp fishing, is it? If you talk to a golf scorer, or yeah, a, yeah, 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 you know, a great golfer or whatever you want to talk about, it's self belief, and I have yeah. got an enormous amount of it, and I hope that don't come across wrong, but I have, you know. I mean, I remember when I remember when I went on the Graviers and Luke Moffat didn't didn't believe in what bait could do. Full stop. He just I don't know. He does now, but he didn't then. And I walked on first day, and he said, uh, so, so this trigger that I've heard all about, do you think this will catch any of the big ones? I said, it'll catch them all. And he just looked at me, but it did. He did. did. Not, not all for me, but it, it was always going to catch them all. Because you've, you know, you've had the scar out of there, haven't you? The big one. I was, yeah, I was incredibly lucky. I had all the known big fish out. Yeah. Um, it was Trigger that caught him, not me. I mean, I, I, I was just the one holding the rod. You, you <laughs> know, no, yeah, I mean, big fish eat good bait. Trigger is and was a very, very good bait. Then big fish were all going to eat it because mm. the, the basis of my fishing has always been so. I mean, there's times if I go locally in winter. I might just go for the high attract approach. But the basis of my fishing, the thinking behind my fishing since the mid-80s has been get a bait established as a food source, and once it's established as a food source, the carp eat every day, they are so much easier to catch. You know, I mean, pe pe people make the argument, what's more important? rigs and bait rigs or bait there's no argument to, for me you can have the best rig in the world if you're not going to eat what's on the end of it forget it you know and if you can get the fish to stage where you're fishing to the stage where the bait you're using is an accepted everyday food source nothing's going to make them feed when they don't want to feed but when when you can get them to that stage when they accept it as a food source the jo the job of catching carp is so much easier, so much easier. The um, if you if you don't mind me name dropping someone else we had on, um, Mark Holmes spoke very similarly about um, conditioning carp and getting them to eat his bait, and that is one of yeah. his his solid tactics as well. So, uh, mm. so yeah, yeah, he's always he's always copied me. <laughs> Do you know what he said exactly that? We had to edit it out, Bill. <laughs> no, but it's, it's common sense, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Common sense. Well, they're animals, aren't they? Yeah, I think Mark is similar to me in that I don't think he uses the world's most technical and complicated rigs. You know, because if you've got if you've got a, a, a bait that they eat, you know, confidently, you don't need them. I don't think you need them. The thing with me, Bill, and the way that Mark was explaining the way he fished he was a, an angler that doesn't care of what people think how he fishes it doesn't matter if he fishes ugly 
to say the, say the word. Um, no. It catches in fish, and I think we all get this pretense of how you should be fishing. You know, three rods on a dinner plate, all nice little Ronnie rigs going. Um, but he's prepared to fish in really unnatural ways. I mean, there was a time when he caught, was it Popeye? He was on the bank, he was fishing. He had the line going along the bank. He was fishing a prawn. Yeah, and he had a massive fish out that just to any normal carp angler who's been in the game for the past 10-15 years would think what are you doing if you saw him and you didn't know the guy you're thinking he's crazy you see uh, you see you look at Holmesy and whether you like him whether you don't like him oh I love you him you can't argue with it you, you, know, you look at his album remember them and you can't argue can you I, I, I think I think I think the problem in this day and age is, and I'm not being the, I'm not being critical for a second, but there's a, probably fifty people in Britain who has a massive influence on the way people fish, and that means so many people are fishing exactly the same way. I mean, I I still use much longer than average soft and supple hook lengths. Nobody else I know does. They don't. You know, they are those little stick and I you know, I, I just but but Holmes he's got the confidence to he's got the courage of his convictions, hasn't he? Yeah. He, he doesn't yeah, care yeah. what everybody else is doing. Okay. Okay. I mean the way you're explaining your the way your watercraft, you are you find a location where the fish is being caught from. Is there anything that would take you off that location? So that you've got a location in mind of this fish that you're trying to catch right at this moment. Is Would a catch at the other end of the lake of it coming out, would that throw the cat amongst the pigeons for you? No, not really. I mean, every big fish is different. The only starting point is... It, that the, and the lake I'm fishing is a lake that doesn't get fished that much. So the only starting point I've got is the two or three captures of this fish I know about. Mm. Uh, now, obviously, it visits lots of other areas of the lake, but that has to be a starting point. You know, where, when I was on Itang Saucy, I looked at the, the the sort of captures of the big common, and it always seemed to come, or the vast majority of the time, it came from a channel at the back of the island, probably a 100 no, 80-yard channel. And I came home after my first trip. I said, it's coming, it's coming from an 80-yard channel that's 30 yards wide. Even I can catch a common in that area of water. And I just plugged away at that area of water till I caught it. Mm. And I didn't, I, I didn't care what swim would give me access to that area. I just tried to get a bait established and went to that area. didn't matter what the wind was doing what the temperature was, went to that area. And, and a lot of times you'll head home with nothing. But it's the way of the world. That, that, that doesn't and never has bothered me. You're very sort of in tune in, in what you're trying to achieve and probably stubborn's a bit of the wrong word. You're very focused on... I don't think, stu I don't think stubborn is the wrong word. You know, I often think I've been too stereotyped in me approach you know because mm. i i vary things very very little um and i look at a lot of the the carp tigers out there and they're they're changing all the time chopping and changing i very rarely do very rarely do 
Okay. And so the weather doesn't really play that much part for you? It is... does. It does. I mean, it, it, it. I like to be on the end of a warm wind. I like, obviously, every water's different. It's not always possible. I like to be in a depth of six to nine foot if I can, purely based on where I've done the the best on a lot of different venues in the past. I'm not a lover of really deep water because I've never done very well in it. Mm-hmm. Um, hard ground and soft ground, every lake's different. I mean, when I keep harping back to the Graviers, but everybody fishes the hard the sort of hard patches, the, and they go out day one on the boat, find a hard patch, that's them. If I look back, I mean, we, we fell into that trap for the first two or three years on that. But if I think back to the vast majority of my captures on there, they've all come from the soft, shittier ground. Um, so I'm not one. I don't like the silt that really stinks and makes your bait stink. But other than that, I'm happier on softer ground than rock hard ground. Why do you think that is, Bill? Better for the carp? I think there's more natural food there. I think there's more for them to search for there. And I think everybody else is fishing the hard spots. Why do you think people always do that? I mean, I'm, I can be guilty of that as well sometimes. Because I think, think we all can. Do you think it's just because we just know we're fishing? And I think anything that's soft yeah. is maybe you got a slight bit of doubt that you're, you're going to be fishing because obviously if your leg's plugged in, I know there's certain techniques and certain methods you can use to, to eradicate that, but in general, you know when you've got a hard bottom, your bait's always going to be presented very well, whereas in perhaps softy, silty stuff, you think he's going to get buried? I think that's a lot of it. I think the satisfying thump you get when it hits a big patch of gravel. <laughs> The confidence it gives you is just yeah. out of this world, isn't it? You just yeah. think, that's the one for me. And I also think, and I've had this argument with a lot of people, one of the reasons I fish soft and supple and longer than average hook lengths is because it doesn't matter what they land on. Whereas some of the, some of the really short rigs that I see people using are no spots where it's going to take the hook bait in, into the silk. You know, I, I just think some of the really short hook lengths are very restrictive in terms of the presentation. They're really restrictive in terms of the, obviously they will catch big fish, but I think longer hook, sort of hook lengths give you a, a huge advantage where the bigger fish are concerned. Um, I've always believed that and always will. I mean, people look at, there's a local lake where I fish that's full of carp tigers. They look at my rigs in disbelief. They just can't believe what's happening. Um, and I'm sure they will catch more fish over a year than me. But I think I've got a better chance of the bigger fish, which is all I'm interested in. Do you pay much attention to weather apps, anything like that, before you're going, before you go to France? or? I do, I do. The, the problem with a lot of the waters I fish is that you have to book them a couple of years in advance. Mm. Um, so you can't, you can't know anything about no, it. No, no, no. You, you, you know, but I'm, I'm, I am, I'm very keen on, on the right sort of temperatures, not too hot, not too cold, and wind direction. 
I mean, most of the lakes I fish in France are what I call natural lakes. And the session has a habit of standing or falling on the weather, particularly on the gravel pits. You know, it, it's like a gravel pit in Oxford. It's in good conditions. It's a totally, totally different lake to in poor conditions. Um, but when you're booking trips so far in advance, you're stuck with what you've got. But I can... I can look at it and think, yeah, I'm in with a good shout this week. Mm. You know, I'd say you're often wrong, it often trips you up, but the, the weather plays a massive part, massive. Mm. But I'm I'm tending to talk about the fishing I do, which is for individual big fish. If I'm going to a lake where I just want to catch fish, like I would locally, then the weather, the wind plays a huge part. You know, mm. then I would... I would try and get on the end of a warm wind or the, um, on the opposite end of the wind if it's a bitterly cold wind. I mean, we, I went, I went to see a couple of mates of mine on a, on a local lake two weeks ago. I went to see the first guy for an hour and we were sat drinking coffee in a T-shirt. Drove around the other end of the lake and it was Baltic. Now, I, I know where I'd want to be. And the wind was pushing up to the second area where we went. But it was so ridiculously cold. It was like December. Um, so you don't automatically follow the wind. I'll always, given the choice, I'll, I'll always want to be on the end of a of a warmish wind for the time of year, but not on the end of a cold wind. Bill, just for the purposes of the listeners who um, may be a little bit newer or um, a little bit less experienced um, listening, why do you want to be on the end of a warmer wind as opposed to on the back of a cold wind? No, I'd be one or the other. I wouldn't be on the end of a cold wind. I, I, I'd rather be on the back of a cold wind because yeah. I think I think they tend to follow a warm wind and they tend to back off a cold wind. Yeah. yeah. But every, every lake's different. Sorry, Bill, you've got time as well as that. I always find that... It's always best to, on a fresh wind, I think that's when it comes into its own, isn't it? I think if yeah. you've got, um, yeah. if a warm wind's been bashing into a corner of a lake for, say, three or four days, yeah. still, there still could be carp in the area, but then I think that that sort of emphasis of them being there perhaps is a little bit less, in my yeah, experience, anyway. Yeah, I mean, a new, if you can get on the end of a, a relatively new southerly, yeah. um, I mean, it's just fantastic. Isn't it? Yes, it's, it's a winner, fantastic. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But uh, particularly, I think if you've had a number of days of an easterly or something, then it switches to a southerly, a warmer southerly. If you can get on the end of that, you know, you could, could be gas, aren't you? Yeah, you definitely are. Um, how much attention do you spend watching the lake? Once you've got your uh, your designated peg, or if you're walking around the lake, I know you explained that. You pick an area, you know that that fish, because obviously you're singling out fish here, and that's an area you know where that fish comes from, going to hopefully come out there for you again. Are you still watching the water? Are you still hoping to see it? If I'm awake, I'm watching the water. I don't... I have no television, I have no radio. I, 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 if I'm awake, I'm watching the water. I drink endless cups of coffee just sat on a perch somewhere where I couldn't watch the water. And what I do do that a few people have found strange, and I've never come across many people who do it, and I've never understood why, I'm a, I tend to wander about a lot at night. 
you know, mi- middle of the night, I'll just get a cup of coffee. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not on about wandering quarter of a mile from the rocks, but I'll wander forty yards one way and forty yards the other. Yeah, and I'll, t- I'll just stand there for an hour because there's so much more movement at night uh, in the hours of darkness, and they, they tend to. I always think when a fish show, shows in the day, I, I could be wrong. I always think when a fish shows in the day, it could be doing anything. I think when they show on a marked spot at night, they tend to be the areas. Um, and I, I fished with a guy, Bernard Sissons, a couple of years ago on a lake called Pascal's in, in France. And he kept waking up to go to the toilet and I'd be stood 20 yards of his bivy just in my flip-flops and my shorts at three in the morning. But I do it a lot because you can, there's so much you can learn and you can learn by looking out into the darkness, you know? So a oh, lot of people think, a lot of people think I sleep, I sleep a lot in the day and I do. But what they don't, don't realise, you know, I'm quite often wandering around for three hours in darkness. What features do you look for, Phil, when you're actually turning up at a lake? another way to go at is that you turn up at a lake you know the area the peg that you want um but what features you looking to try and tackle on that area that of that designated peg i like the bottom of slopes i don't really go into this fishing on the slope um but i like to fish at the bottom of the slope if everybody whenever you see a tree line Everybody in the dog fishes three and a half inches from the tree line, don't they? I tend to fish 10, 12 foot from the tree line because, you know, the bottom of the slope is where all the bits and bobs collect. Um, and I think it might take a bit longer to get a take. It might not produce as many takes, but you're better fish. In my experience, tend to come a, a little bit further off tree lines. I like... If I'm going to fish a hard spot, I like it to be close to some dense weed. Um, if you can get dense weed where they are a lot and then a hard patch near it, I like that. Um, uh, the more weed, the better for me. I just think it makes carp so much easier to catch. You know, your your rigs are, are less obvious. Um, the fish are happier there. I mean, so somewhere. A number of the lakes I've fished have gone through weedy stages and unweedy stages. And the weedy stages, it might be a bit trickier, but you tend to catch more. And do you um, still fish the same tactic, the same method that you're fishing? In weedy yeah, then? pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Would, would that be like yeah. with a bag or a stick? I only really use bags. Um if I'm sort of stalking in the edge, I'm not a great bag user. I prefer I prefer a spreader bait, the thinking being you pick one up and move off to the next one. You know, that's that's the tactic that suits the way I present a hook bait. You know, the longer than average hook length relies on them picking up and moving, as opposed to sitting on the nose and um, and uh, and, stuff, uh, and stuff in the face in the same spot for two mm-hmm. or three minutes, you know. Yeah. But I'm going to pick one up more. So I like to bait. There are exceptions like holding the weed and that, but I tend to fish a larger area. I tend to bait a larger area than a lot of people do. Um, but as I said, most of my 
it all comes down to the style of fishing you do. The vast majority of the fishing I do is session fishing, a week, possibly longer. I'm looking for result uh, and for a result in that week, not on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, I don't care if that result comes on the Friday morning as I'm packing up or when I've just got there. So a big, a big area of bait, you're fishing for a result in that week. And that's why I think so many people make the mistake of, not just in France, but in the UK as well. If you haven't worked on day one, it's different bait, different position, different rigs. I don't do that. I believe in what I'm doing. Possibly don't change enough. Um, I'm possibly too set in my ways because of how many times it's worked in the past. But I'll just plug away. Um, I don't chop and change every time it don't um, work for 12 hours or every time the guy up the bank catches two and I'm blank. I don't change everything. Are you using pop-ups most of the time? or bottom uh, I, Yeah, I like to use snowmen. Um, I use pop-ups an awful lot. Then I went off them in the last couple of years. I've used them quite a bit again. Um, why, did, why did you go off them, Bill? It just seemed to... I think the more pressured the lake is, the less I tend to use pop-ups. Um, I mean, if I go back to the early days of the, when I started, if you were the first on, on the water with pop-ups, you took it apart. But I think... I'm not sure about pop-ups that are very close to the bottom because I, I think when you get a pop-up that's only an, an inch or so from the bottom, nobody will ever convince me that they know it's popped up. You know, I'm just not having it, you know. If you look at a big fish and where the eyes are and where the mouth is, they aren't looking at that from three foot away going, aye, aye, that's an inch and a half off the bottom. And I just don't buy it. Um, but I've started using pop-ups a lot in the last uh, in the last 18 months again and done quite well in them. Yeah. I mean, I'm under the belief that pop-up, um, if you're using something like a chord, or like you say, that's a couple of inches up i think the bigger fish with the bigger bellies um i just find that for them it's an easier target for them to pick up whereas I think me, it is. um it's like if you're if you're a big fat man bending over to pick something up it's a lot harder I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the point i was making about the longer hook lengths yeah if you've got a four inch hook length and some of the fish of the proportions that I like to think I've got a chance of catching comes along, it has literally got to stand on its head to get that bait. Mm. You know, whereas where I fish hook lengths 10, 12, 14 inches long, and that is more suitable for a big fish. I don't care what anybody says. Um, uh, and as I said already, it probably does cost me a number of smaller fish a year. But if that increases my chances of a big fish, I don't care. Don't care. And you were saying earlier, which I felt, which I was um, finding um, really interesting, Bill. Your longer um, setup um, and how you're presenting it, your longer rig, that is also suited to the type of baiting application you do, isn't it? That you're you're, you're, you're spreading bait around a bigger area. And you're, yeah, it's almost you're, like you're encouraging it's almost like to come in and, and pick up and move off a spot. Exactly that. It's almost like a confidence trick. If your bait application wasn't as 
you were discussing earlier, you potentially wouldn't fish such a long rig. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. that's okay. That's, that's, that's sort I, of what I, I was... think. I think your approach, just like the bait you use, people tend to pick a bait because Terry Hearn uses it, or Daryl Peck uses it, yeah. or Danny Fairbrass uses it. Not many stop to think, well, what is the best bait for what I want out of it? And that yeah. might be the bait that, that, that Daryl Beck uses. But if if you've got a guy who's fishing four days a week on the same lake all year and you're fishing every third Friday night because you've got three kids and a 45-hour-a-week job, what you, want from your, yeah, what you want from your bait is totally different from what that other guy wants from his. Yes. You know, so I think rigs are like bait. It's all about picking what suits you and suits your approach. Mm. Yeah. Wise words, my friend. Wise words. Right. Okay, Bill. What are we going to do? We're going to move on to our first feature. Now, right. I don't I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, think about this, but we do our feature called Noddy Nightmares. This is where we ask the guests to give us a uh, carp fishing fail. So anything that's gone terribly wrong for you, um, that we can all have a good chuckle over. Uh, how long have you got? Bloody <laughs> <laughs> nightmares! The one that I actually wrote about it in Carpology um, in the next month or the month after, maybe. Um, when I was, I suppose I'd be about 24, and me and Tim were frantically making bait for three days a week and then going fishing for three or four days a week and in the days when you used to make pound mixes and stuff like that uh, four egg mixes i um we'd recently got some garlic oil from a supplier before garlic oil was a really well-known sort of product and for anybody who used it will know it proper proper stinks it's unbelievable you can't get rid of it now now nutribates in those days was based in my parents garage which had uh underfloor heating so every time we bottled the garlic oil i had to wait till mum and dad were at work turn the heating off or it would pull the all through the house but bait making was always done in mum and dad's kitchen and i um I got the address for a catering company who had some really heavy-duty sort of catering equipment. And one of the things I bought was a industrial-sized liquidizer-type thing with about a foot across, a, a, a foot diameter. So I got a bit brave, and I thought, I'm going to start making 18 egg mixes. So I, um, I put 18 eggs in this blender. I put... I think six drops of garlic oil in, phone rang, answered the phone, come back, turned it on, and I'd not put a lid on. And I had, it was, I don't know what was the most impressive, the, the distance it chucked it, or the fact that there was a perfect red circle on my mum's kitchen ceiling, about, about <laughs> the size of a dark one. Absolutely perfect. Uh, <laughs> So that didn't go down too well. And the other one that springs to mind is me, me and the much-missed uh, Nick Elliott 
uh, who owned Bankside Tackle in Sheffield, went on a water in Cheshire called Lim Dam. Um, and we picked up on a method that allowed you to make a bait, a bait in a brick, uh, a full sort of four or five egg mix in a, in a brick, cook it as a brick or boil it as a brick, and then cube it up. So you finished up with a lot of square baits, which I've always been a big fan of. So we, prior to the first week of the season, I mean, in those days, we used to arrive prior to term, to the opening of the season, three or four days before the season started, and just keep, camp out in the, uh, in the swim we wanted. So I rolled up with 24 kilos of this bait in freezer boxes. The idea being that I was going to trickle it in for three days in these two spots before Nick rolled up. So I, I, I sort of set my camp up three days before the season started, queued all these baits up, catapulted them in, and the whole lot floated. We, we had 24 kilos of floating bait and nothing else. <laughs> uh, what, we'd, what we'd not realised was if, if you do that method, you have to boil it in a polythene bag or wrap it in cling film and then boil it. If not, the, the old lot floats. So we were, I was stuck with 24 kilos of a floating bait, which was a great <laughs> deal. Did you look good? Luckily, I had the, the sort of foresight to think, I wonder what happens if you reboil it. So I had to reboil the old lot, and after I reboiled them, most of them sank. It's oh. a bit of a disaster. There's plenty of them. I was going to say, how's your zig fishing? <laughs> Never used a zig in my life. Never cast one out. Cast one out once. I left it out for about 20 minutes and wound it back in. And you thought, no, that ain't going to happen, is it? <laughs> cheating, mate. It's cheating. Like shooting fish in a barrel. Thanks for that. Great. It's even to know that even the bait masters get it wrong. <laughs> you know, that's not, I think that's a fantastic story. Given, given Bill's background, how, um, how pinnacle some of the the, the bait making that Bill's done over the years has been to hear a story of, you know, Bill making 24 kilos of bait that was meant to go on the bottom and floating. I think it's almost inspirational for people like you and me, Rez. Yeah, I mean, you know, right, you know what they say about people who never made a mistake, don't you? They've never done anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, uh, yeah, no, story, Bill. We've had, had plenty of disasters along the way. I bet you had fun telling your mum about the ceiling and the mark. I bet she. I love better days. I love better <laughs> days. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yeah, thanks for that, Bill. Is there any point within your fishing that you will move location? I don't think I move as much as I should. Sometimes um, I look at some of these guys on YouTube and on social media. Perhaps it's an age thing. I don't know. There's so much more motivated than me in some areas uh but not in others um there's been a there isn't many sessions where i've come home and thought i should have done that or i should have done this um but if i have thought that it's been where i've not moved and perhaps i should have done i'm a little bit we're rigged with bait with with approach with moving at times, I'm too stubborn for my own good, I think. 
Do you, um, do, you th- do you think that is well, Bill, that, that we're all hampered down with the equipment that we got? If it was just a case you had your rod and your landing net, do you think you'd be moving a lot more? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, the gear we take is ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I always think, I mean, when I started carp fishing, I had a, a Morris 1000 Traveller, if you remember them. Um, and then I had a Vauxhall Chevette. Yeah, I could, have, I could have, yeah, <laughs> you, you couldn't get your gear in that now. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a big transporter now, and I feel that. You know, I don't, I don't know what. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? It is. It I, is crazy. I remember my mum in the school holidays used to drop my mate and I fishing down the lake for the day, and she had a little old school Mini Cooper. Both of us, yeah, both of us six footers, and we would both get in that car. We have our day's worth of fishing gear. Yeah. Yeah. Now I can't uh, I, get my gear in a bloody Nissan X-Trail. I know. I know. i tell you what I do enjoy, though. I mean, the bulk of my fishing is session fishing, as I've said. Uh, and I like my home comforts. But I do love fishing locally when you need, you know, just for the evening, where I need t- two rods, a flask of coffee and a loach. It's brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, it's the bit, it's the bits in between that I struggle with because I, I class myself as a decent session angler, a decent, very short session angler, but when it's like two days, three days, I, I'm like covering the devil in the deep blue sea a bit. That is it in a nutshell. That you, sometimes you go down a bank, and I've gone down a bank and. One of the local parks I fished, and you get the dog walkers and and this, and they look at you sometimes. You got your barrel, you got your rods, you got your carry all, and um, it's a country park. And they look at you like you're here for a week. No, I'm here for a couple of nights or a night, and it, it is, is quite it ludicrous. Is absolute, and I can't, <laughs> I can't work out what is different because the unlucky mats and everything's got so much bigger. Other than that. I can never get my head around what I take that I didn't used to take. I thought everything was just bigger. Yeah, and also the stuff as well that you don't use. You think when you go fishing, you just have it because you think, well, I might need that. Well, I might need I that. Know. When you go, you think about the stuff that you actually use. You don't need half the stuff you've got in there, but it's just in case. Well, I have. I, I carry a, to France with me uh, one of these big Ridge Monkey tackle boxes full of stuff. And I take a little zip-up bag like that that I use for me baiting and for me pre you know, rebaiting a hook and that. I very rarely go in the tackle box. Very, very rarely. But you've got to have it, haven't you? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It is absolute magic. We are. We all are. I mean, when you go... I went in the, the local angling direct at Rotherham a few weeks ago, and I think, we cannot possibly need all this to go catfish just <laughs> madness you can't can you it's just crazy it is but, even, it's even worse now i take um i take my children fishing with me and yeah um, last no when was it i can't remember the time i can't remember the time span in the last couple of years not around covid obviously i took my eight he's now eight so whatever age he was then for his first ever night and i kid you not I've taken less camping for a week with the family. Yeah, you know, but having, having having my son with me for his first night, all the cooking gear, so he could have a bit excited with some with a barbecue or things like that, and 
you know, all, all the different bait and, you know, make because I, I wanted to try and make sure we caught something. So, you know, I didn't want to be there thinking, oh, I wish I bought this or I wish I could do that. And, you know, I didn't want him to turn up and blank. And, yeah. Like, it well, was I, think, I, think the ba- I think the bait's a lot of it. I mean, yeah. when I first started, if you took four kilos for a weekend, you were piling it in. I mean, now, the, the, you know, you've got 57 buckets of munger, haven't you, and five yeah. freezer boxes, and it's just madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, crazy. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I mean there the seems to me, with these sponsored anglers these days, there seems to be a battle who can take and use the most bait. You know, it's just crazy. I mean, most of... I've been incredibly fortunate over the last few years in, in terms of big fish. The vast majority of them have been caught on three handfuls of bait. Yeah. You know, which yeah. everybody, given my background and what I've done for a living for a lot of years, everybody assumes, you know, you, you just go out with kilos and kilos and kilos. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, the last couple of times I've been, um, I've put more bait in the small lake than I have in the big syndicate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mad- madness, absolute madness. I think everything's too available now. I mean, if if I go back to the times when I was fishing in the UK a lot, if you wanted twenty kilos of bait, yeah. it took you five days to roll it. Yeah, you know, now you can just wander down the shop and buy it for about fifteen quid or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, it's just changed so much. Yeah, yeah, but there is a. There is a percentage of people who think the more I can put in, you know, the higher flavour level, the more bait I can put in, the more I'm going to catch. Absolute nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Your baiting technique is the way I usually bait. I like to spread bait as well because I think it's that that sort of ethos of if a bait's coming, if a fish is coming along, picking up the bait, sees one, goes on, sort of Pac-Man's on the bottom, doesn't it? Goes one, yeah. sees your pop-up and... Has it now? This is the age I was saying. I think Simon Scott says a lot easier to catch a moving carp than it is a carp that's standing still. If you've got a carp that's chowing down on preoccupied on particles, round a hook bait, it's it's not moving. It's like for any of us. If you're running along and you try and pick up a glass of water as you're walking along, it's a lot harder. Yeah, it's so so true. If you look at a PVA bag, for example, it is the worst possible scenario to get a rig working. Mm. You know, because you're just encouraging them to sit on the spot, mm. which in truth, you haven't got them, you, you haven't got to encourage them to move 20 feet, but if you can encourage them to work to sort of move 18 inches, so much better. It also keep, it, um, it keeps them in the swing longer as well. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. I've not really thought that um, that that process from a PVA bag to um, spreading some bait out and mm. uh, and the rig dynamics. Because the best kind of carp is the carp that you know is moving around and bolting off, and everyone, yeah. everyone wants their hooks to turn around in the carp's mouth and bolt off and. If you've got a big pile of food in front of them in one little area and it's just sitting there and it's got any 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 sort of you know sense about it, 
that fish is going to be a lot harder to catch than the, than the fish yeah. that's moving around an area. So, I mean, the, um, best po- the best possible scenario you can have is for it to pick up a bait, move off and, stra- uh, and straighten the other one. That is the yeah. best possible scenario. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. as I say, it's horses for courses. Everybody fishes different. Everybody's everybody's rigs are different. Everybody's approaches are different. But, you know, if I could give one bit of advice to people, it would be do your own thing rather than just follow everybody else. And that's what uh, Mark Holmes always makes that point and Adam Penning always makes that point. And this is so right. Mm. Two of the best. It's, it's having the it's having the courage of your convictions, isn't it? it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, if if Danny Fairbrass does it, it's got to be right. I've no doubt it is right in the situation that he's in at that time. Don't mean it's right for yours. Um, Bill, I'm on a promise to one of our listeners. Um, oh I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty. I, I, have you got I, a I, number? This has literally happened as we started recording. Um, yeah, I've been messaged by one of our listeners who was um, just talking to us, and I just commented that we're recording with you tonight, and he said he'd love to ask you a couple of questions. So this is Lewis Hannum, and Lewis Hannum writes, um, I think you've answered them a bit, but I'll ask them anyway, and we can, you can always go back to what you said earlier. Um, I'd love to know if Bill... Um, hasn't if he hasn't seen anything while he's fishing, what's his next call to decide where to fish? I'm struggling at the minute to find any showing fish on my lake, so my call is front or back of the wind or up to snags. So would Bill tell us what his thoughts are? That's question number one. I think I think snags is always a safe option because if they're at that particular part of the lake. They're never far away. Um, the wind, I think, as we said earlier, depends massively on the temperature, massively on the water. Um, but the main thing I would do is watch and watch and watch. And if you get the chance, watch at night or, yeah. or listen at night. Yeah. Then I, I can't stress enough how how many areas I've found as a result of of listening at night it's just huge and nobody does it and interestingly enough lewis's second question is i'd also be interested to know how long he would spend watching the water before he makes his decision if he hasn't seen anything so you've sort of alluded to that about listening and watching at night is there anything additional in relation to that question you could add to that well obviously i can't on a lot of the waters I fish because they're too far away um, yeah. but on a local water I would do as much watching as I could when I wasn't fishing Yeah, be it having a wander around with the dog you know and, yeah. and making a note of where they are in particular conditions I mean on the busier waters which are so commonplace sort of these days I'm very paranoid about lines not just mine everybody else's so if, if you've got one area of the uh, and the lake i went to last week to to, to see those a couple of mates of mine that i mentioned most of the swims were taken and then the 
there was about six swims with nobody in them. That to, that would attract me greatly because yeah. it's not just the, your lines. It, it, it's everybody else's lines. And if you've got five swims on, a, on the trot, all with three lines out, mm. I would get... Uh, and then you've got a decent area with no lines. Mm. I would always head for that, particularly if the fish will tend to be in areas where then lines are in mid-water. Yes. yes. I mean, I don't worry about line on the bottom. I don't worry about anti-tangled tubing on the bottom. But line in mid-water bothers me greatly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, would, would zigs come into that equation, Bill? I'm not an expert on zigs at all, but I do think until they blow, um, vertical lines, they tend to spook on less, which I think is one of the reasons why you can sometimes get a take in a margin on a float that you couldn't get with a lead. Um, there seems to be something about a vertical line. But I think that's purely because less people use them. So many of these effective tactics come down to the fact that the vast majority of people are doing something else. Mm. Um, and again, um, Adam made that point on, on one of the video I watched the other day. You know, his, his objective on a lot of waters is to do something totally different to everybody else. And that's massive. I mean, I... I do that on the majority of waters because my approach is so radically different from so many people's. Mm. Mm. I don't. I don't care what other people do. I really don't. I'm interested, but, yeah. but it doesn't influence what I do. Not okay. at all. Well, there you go, Lewis Hannon. Um, thank you for dropping me the message. The great man has answered your questions, buddy. I hope that um, answers your questions. Thank you, Lewis. We'll uh, move on to our next feature, Bill. This is our uh, quick fire five. Five easy carp fishing related questions. Go on then. Quick fire five. Right, okay. First question, Bill. Fully scaled or leather? Fully scaled. Barbed or barbless? Barbed. Mono or fluoro? Mono. 430s or 140? I don't know. Um, 160. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. That does sum up what you've been discussing this evening. Last question. Real handles, in or out? Now then. <laughs> this folded real handle game. <laughs> that that is never that is never ever right, is it? Absolute nonsense that is. I could bore you for hours. Uh, you just I mean, what what brilliant reaction? What nonsense that is! What is all that about? I it's just there's, the, there's, there's so many of these carp fishing traits that are just aimed to make your life harder. I mean, I don't know if you. If you read the twaddle that I write in, in carpology, but I, I actually made the point the other week that let's make it harder still and take the real handle off and bury it in the bottom of the rucksack. <laughs> and then when we get a take, we've got to get it on. And it's just nonsense. I mean, what is that about? 
the great thing about car fishing is we do it how we want to do it, don't yeah. we? Um, deep down, I don't. It's not really a, an anything. I mean, yeah. the the guys who do it, they've got issues, and we we shouldn't, you know, we we shouldn't punish them for that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's just it's bizarre, isn't it? Who did that first when they thought? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I mean, it's just Weird, next thing they'll have the. Rather than have the rods in half on the rest one, so you've got to stick your butt section into your tip section next. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like them, it's like them rod pods on soft ground. What's all that about? <laughs> don't get me started. This is going into Bill's rant. This is what this is going to go into. Yeah, don't, don't get me started. <laughs> get started. It makes for good podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Some great answers there, mate. Do you do much margin fishing? Do you ignore the margins? Or are you one of these anglers that really like to have one rod in the margins, especially over the over the night? And could you just give the listeners on, on the reasons well, why? I wouldn't say I religiously have a bait in the margins. It, it all depends on the lake, on the swim, but I absolutely love the margins. Um, always have done. I just think they're... They're so neglected on so many waters, you know. They were, everybody's obsessed with fishing 57 wraps or whatever they do. Um, nobody ever just gives it an underarm swing anymore, I don't think. And it's uh, it's caught me so many fish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, um, I love it. I love the margins. But I don't yeah. religiously. All, all depends on the lake, doesn't it? But if I've got an mm. option to, I always will. The reason why I like the margin, because it's always an area that the fish... It's like a patrol route. It's a natural patrol route. I know you've got weed channels. The perimeter of the lake is is a fence in some regards, and they're always going to, at some point, go up to that fence, especially in the summer months. Water's going to be a lot warmer. But for me yeah. personally, you just know that you're fishing. I just love that notion. It's close range, and you can fish to a tee. It's, it's proper fishing, isn't it? Yeah, you can rest your bait and your hook out. You know it's all absolutely kosher. You put your handful of chopped boilies or whatever over the top. You know Everything is just exactly how you want it. Now, if you could fish out in the middle of the lake, you'd be doing exactly the same way that you'd be doing it in the margin, in my opinion. The other um, thing I, I, I like about a margin rod is, I mentioned line a few lines a few minutes ago, and... I do get paranoid about it, and very often on a French venue, if I'm fishing four rods or three rods or whatever, I very often sit there thinking, I'd be better with two rods here, you know, because of the lines, purely because of the lines, and because you've probably got two good spots and one somewhere on a bit of a wing and a prayer. You're probably better off with that rod not out. Um, But a margin rod, allows you to be fishing but the line's not going out into the main body of the lake which i think is also a big plus mm, yeah and the line the lines the lines really bother me i mean i do i don't fish slack lines very often at all i i, I always fish semi-tight but the lines they, they really do bother me just for the purposes you said about lines and how it bothers you bill um mm. again to bring uh, to bring our, our mutual friend Mark Holmes back into the conversation, he wrote a piece in um, this month's Total Carp, which I read with utter fascination. 
Um, I, I'm, um, I work in healthcare, so science and, you know, analytics is something that, you know, thinking about things analytically is something my brain does. And Mark was talking about tight lines. And then he used the analogy of two cups and a bit of string and how sound travels. Do you have any thoughts about that, about um, how how fish potentially pick up a lot more underwater through the lines that we introduce into the water than potentially we actually realise using the two cups and string sort of analogy for travelling sound? I, w- I would be surprised. Yeah. I would. I mean, the 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 basic my basic thought process on on using semi-tight lines um, is I think in the vast majority of, of, of situations it might look very sexy with your lines limp off, off, off the rod tip and you know limp between every but it's absolute nonsense I mean if you're fishing at 70 yards them drawings in the magazines where the line goes up and down over every bump it's absolute nonsense. You know, all that happens, you, you get a bit of undertow or you get a bit of wind, and it's tight anyway. <laughs> it, it, and, then, and if you're on a gravel pit where you've got bars and umps and plateaus, yeah. anybody who genuinely thinks that a slight line is following the, the, the contours of the bottom, it's just nonsense. Mm. Uh, absolute nonsense. So... The only time I fish a, what I would class as a slack line is in the margin. Yeah. yeah. You know, where I know I know there's nothing, there's no undulations between me and uh, and the hook bay. But after that remark, I, I don't know. I, I would doubt it. I think he spent a bit too much time in the bivy, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Bill, I mean, for me, I think there's something in that because... I have my sounder box on when I'm fishing, and if I'm fishing any, I fish semi slack. I don't fish bow tight lines. I have them not tight and not slack. So yeah, in between. Yeah, yeah. But in general, I think if you're fishing very tight lines, I think there's got to be something in that. That because my biggest concern is is where the bite alarm is making a noise. Um, does that travel down the line? I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. Does that vibration? And that sound, in science, it says it should do. Um, if the water stops that travelling, if it's you know if it halts it on its travel down the line because you've got that body of water in its way. But if you've got the string and the cup method, then it does travel down the string. Now, yeah, I, I always have that bit of paranoia in me, and usually I will turn my sounder boxes right down. Um, sorry, my, my alarm's down and I have my sounder box up. So any vibration or any noise is coming straight from my sounder box and actually not from my alarms itself. Um, yeah. It just might be me overthinking things. But I do, I think, well, it's better be safe than sorry in, in some regards. Obviously, if I'm fishing without my sounder box, then I have to have it on. But I have them on at quite a low volume if I can get away with it. I think there, there may be something in it. But, yeah, it may be just old hat. Uh- yeah, I mean, I um, I always have my heads off, um, or or as low as they'll go. But it's not a conscious thing thinking mm. about that. I've got to be honest. Uh, although, 
Who's to say? I don't know. No, don't it's, know. it's just interesting. It's just been no one's... I don't yeah. know if Rob Hughes has ever done a test or... Um, yeah. And he's underwater. If he could do a test or maybe some vibration sensor, some sort of a sound test equipment that he could have on the end of the line or, or maybe right on the end of the hook. There may be something that to the human ear that we don't pick up, but to the fish's senses, it may notice. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, they're, they're very, very strange things, I think, Carp, because a lake where I used to fish, it was run by a husband and wife. And the wife was into this power walking thing. And she'd march to do about eight laps of the lake every day in a bright pink leotard or a red cardigan and just march around. Carp wouldn't move at all. They just, they just let her march past. I'd creep round head to foot in camo, just tread on the, on the wrong twig, and they're off. And it's bizarre. Mm. Bizarre. It's, just, mm. it's what they get accustomed to, I think. Yeah. I don't know about the sound thing. I think there's no doubt in my mind that carp are aware of an awful lot more than we realise. You know, and I'm not I'm not talking about disguising rigs or looking for leads and things, but just in their natural environment, they're aware of an awful lot that we don't even understand, I think. Especially when they're very uh, pressured fish as well. They're, you know, these senses yeah. are going to be even more heightened, aren't they? They've got to be. Yeah. Yeah. They've okay. got to be. Now, we're going to go on to snags fishing. Um Snags are a, a great, I've had some great results out of snags. Obviously, they're, they're quite a perilous area to fish, but fish, for me, if you ignore snags, I think you ignore them at your peril. Um, are you the same with that, Bill? Do you find snags to be quite productive for you over the years? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I'm always, as I said, when I, when I go on a session, I'm, I'm looking for a result in the week, not on the first day. Uh, as a consequence of that, I never fish what I consider to be dangerously close to them. You know, no. it's just, it, it might get you plenty of takes, but it's uh, it's not the done thing, is it? But yeah, certainly in and around snags, uh, but, but not in them. I mean, some of the antics I hear about at Rainbow, that's not just, for me. I, I was just going to ask you that, Bill. I'm an idiot. You've got to see it happening. A lot of guys I respect do it. I don't know, but it's it's not for me that. You know, I mean, I'd, do you not think the owner would not be happy with that? Do you think he'd be on top of that? Well, I wouldn't be happy if it were my leg. Put it that way. Pascal is very aware of tactics on Rainbow, and um, he ha I don't believe he's had any issues with the tactics that they're doing. But um, it is. Pretty, I mean, to be fair, pretty out. To there. be fair, I, I fished Rainbow once in 1991. I think we were about the first group to go. I think um, I've not been back, so I've not, I've not seen it going on. Um, and I have to say, the fish that you see from there look magnificent. Yeah. You know, so I mean, they they all look in amazing condition. Um, but it just it. It just doesn't sit right with me. But that don't make it wrong, you know. It's uh, it's like I said before, it seeks to their own, you know. And if uh, if you're doing it responsibly, I suppose. Um, I mean, a lot of the people who are doing it, 
you know, the the guys who care an awful lot about the fish and what we're doing, and so they must think it's safe. Uh, but it just, I don't want to catch them that bad, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fair enough, mate. It's, you have to really know what you're doing when you're fishing in snags um, or fishing anywhere near snags. You've got to be on your rods. You've got to be locked up. Um, yeah. You've got to make sure all the tackle and the rigs you're, you're using are all self-ejecting. You know, they have to lose the rig if, if you lose the fish in the snags. Just fish safe. I, I mean, it is. Uh, let's be honest. When you're snag fishing, you are going to lose the odd fish. You are going to leave tass- and tass- a bit of tackle in the odd fish. It's naive to think that that will never happen. But, um, you know, I always try and give myself a fighting chance, put it that way. I mean, when I see some people put baits, it's just a disgrace. You know, I'm not on about rain, but I'm just on about it in general, you know. They're just desperate for takes. And I'm, I'm not that desperate. Got to say, my mindset is always, if I put it here, how am I landing the fish? Yeah, you, you've got... You see, remote control boats is a is an issue for some people. It's not an issue for me. The issue I have is how some people use them. Yeah. You know, if they want to go eighty yards and and drop them in a spot to get that presentation, great. If they want to take them six foot under the ropes, then I do have an issue with them. Yeah. And that's the problem with them. It's too easy to fish spots that you shouldn't be fishing. Yeah, but when used responsibly, I don't have a problem with them at all. Do you take much notice to um, clear water or cloudy water? Does that make your fish slightly different to what you would on any given day? What do you mean in terms of uh, uh, if it's fish movement or...? In regards of what you're putting on the end of your hook, if it's a cloudy venue or obviously if it's weedy, then it's going to be a clearer venue. I mean, is there, do you change your tact? in the way that you would approach that? As I mentioned a few times, I don't think I changed my tactics enough. I think maybe I should do, uh, but I don't know. I mm. just do what I do. I know I'm being ever so boring, but I can't say I would. can't say I would. To be honest with you, Bill, one of the, one of the wonderful messages that's coming across from this podcast is have confidence in what you're doing. Mm. And if it works and, you, and you're confident such, in it, do it. Mm. It's such a massive thing. It is. It is. 100%. It is. I mean, I mean, people get me wrong. I think they get everybody who is, is in the magazines, on social media quite a bit. I think they do fall into the trap of thinking you're, catch, you're sort of catching 40 pounds every other day. You know, I've had some incredibly tough sessions, but I very rarely come home thinking, if only I'd done that, if only I'd done that, because I'm totally happy. Yeah. And the, the the tactics I approach, uh, uh, um, I used to approach me fishing, have been. I come from Rotherham, as I mentioned. I never thought I'd catch a twenty pounder. You know, I couldn't, never dreamt I would. So when when you have some of the tough times, I just sit there and think some of the fish I've been so fortunate to catch, and I'm I'm happy with what I'm doing, so I keep doing it. Uh, fair play to you, pal. But I do, I do look at some of these carp tigers on social media, and I think, in many respects, in twenty times the angler that I will ever be. Um, but I've got a method that works for me, you know. 
that's fair enough, Bill. I tell you what, you know, if people can go into their fishing with the confidence that you have, because I, I think there's so many anglers out there. I could probably include myself that not having the confidence in the technique or the method that you're using, it's very easy when you're going through a, a barren patch of not catching to changing something that's that's probably alien to you in, in your fishing styles. And I think that's when it starts to unravel. I know what I'm reasonably good at and I know what I'm not very good at. Mm. You know, I couldn't compete on linear or mm. wh- or whatever. Mm. But I know the style of fishing I adopt on the type of waters I fish. I'm comfortable with it. I'm reasonably good at it. And I enjoy it. So that's what I do. Yeah. Okay, Bill, I'll tell you what, we're going to leave it there. Um, we'll be going for a little while now. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, I don't know what the, the listeners can take from this with their watercraft. Just keep being persistent in what you're doing and believe in what you're doing. Keep your knowledge on the water, especially if you're singling out fish like yourself. You really need to find out where these fish are coming from, get them confident on your bait, and, yeah, hopefully you'll get the results that you want. And believe and believe such a huge huge part of it okay mate thank you for that we'll leave it there you've been a great guest a great pleasure um same to you matt thank you to the listeners and we'll see you on the next episode of carp cogs